folks, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Big Talk on WFHB. I am Alex Ashkin, your guest host. We are joined today by John Duffy, the Brown County-based documentarian, author, podcaster, and man of many talents. He has helped create films such as 9-11, Press for Truth, worked on books regarding the intelligence community, such as The Watchdogs Didn't Bark, and worked on his podcast after the uprising, the death of Donye Dion Jones. He has also recently published a new novel titled A Ballroom for Ghost Dancing, which can be found both online and at local bookstores. John, how are you doing today? I am doing uh, really well. Thank you. Brown County seems to be a real nexus for creative types. That is 100% true. I moved to Indiana from Austin, Texas. I grew up in Illinois, uh, in the Chicago area and lived in Chicago for a long time. And I bounced around the country a bit. And I think I just had my fill of big cities. And as much as they do offer some wonderful things, I think I was just ready for a time in my life that would be a bit more quiet and a bit more private and you know, just give me the room to kind of kick around and be a weirdo. Uh, you can't really do as easily when you're surrounded by people who have expectations that you, you know, wear pants or things like that. <laughs> you know, when when you have your own land, you can kind of just be as bizarre as you want at any given time. So, yeah, we moved up. Uh, my she was my girlfriend at the time. She's my wife now. Um, but we moved up together from Austin in 2013. And pretty quickly broke ground on uh, a site to build a house. And we've been putting that cabin together ever since. And it's really come along. It's a very comfortable, cozy spot you know. now, but it's not entirely complete. I think it's one of those things where it will never, ever be entirely complete. I think I'll always be sort of finishing something on it. You've been working as a documentarian writer for 20-ish years now, starting with your time at Columbia College, going to film school. It seems like for a long time, there was always a bit of a focus on like a mystery or um, untold narratives, things that were perhaps suppressed with things like 9-11 Press for Truth or The Watchdogs Didn't Bark, maybe not accepting the company line or trying to peer behind uh, the curtain. I went to college, like you said, at Columbia College in Chicago, and I had every intention of working just in narrative film. And then when I was there, uh, you know, studying, I really started falling hard uh, in love with, with just literature. Uh, which is, you know, I have a, my novel just came out now, but I, and I think in my head, what I really wanted to be was someone who worked mostly in narrative and just in creative, uh, you know, fictional stories, whether I was writing them as books or whether I was, you know, trying to write them as screenplays. I think that's really where sort of my heart was. I, you know, just in existing in the world, I, I couldn't help but have my interest picked by things that were happening you know, all around me. And 
I'm just, I'm again, I'm, I'm a weirdo. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a dork. I, you know, like I love to sit around and sort of read and scratch, you know, sort of scratch the paint and see what's under that layer, you know, beneath. And I would just find that there would be, you know, there would be facts that were, it's not like they were hidden so much as they just didn't ever gain momentum. And we live in a very interesting time culturally, where obviously there are certain things that become outlandish conspiracy theories that take uh, really take hold with certain segments of the population who grab them and run with them. And they don't have a very eye for investigation or proof or, you know, the details, that sort of thing. And I, I always thought I was actually quite skeptical in every direction. I was skeptical of sort of what I was being told if I thought there were things that were being overlooked. And I was skeptical if people were seemed to be making things up whole cloth. And one of my friends from Columbia, uh, Ray Novoselsky, who I still work with to this day, who uh, lives in Bloomington, Indiana, we, you know, we work on stuff all the time. And it, it was sort of like this thing where we kind of sit around and kick around talking points about whatever was happening and be like, you know, it, it seems like this page B6 story is not one that's taking root in the, in the popular consciousness. So it would be a thing that we, you might be able to demonstrate is true. It did happen. It was part of, let's say, the war on terror story. And it's like, see, this happened. They reported on it. But most people in the in the general population wouldn't incorporate that piece of information into their understanding of what had happened. And you add up enough of those page B6 stories, then all of a sudden you have tons and tons of people with a general understanding that's missing so much nuance and detail that they basically have the whole story wrong at that point. And that stuff to me was sort of frustrating where I'd be like, no guys, the story's over here. And then, you know, my initial sort of curiosities were all like, well, why doesn't, you know, the mainstream media push harder on sort of collating this stuff and, and putting it together into really digestible packages for people. And, you know, I've come up with a lot of different understandings and answers to that general question as time's gone on. You know, I was a kid of the of the 9-11 era. I was going to college, you know, when 9-11 happened and I was in documentary classes. If, if you put me a, a few decades prior, I would have been one of those kids who was really interested in college, interested in the Vietnam War. But, you know, my era was sort of that war on terror, Iraq war era where like I was concerned with things regarding unjust wars in the Middle East or, you know, lies about torture issues of illegal, you know, detention of people without, you know, holding them without charge. Those were the issues of my sort of coming into adulthood when I was in my young 20s. Like you brought up the film Press for Truth that I made with Ray, which was all about the 9-11 commission report and how the government didn't even want there to be an investigation into 9-11. And it took a lot of family members of uh, of the dead to make sure that that happened. And then we went on and we made a podcast called Who is Rich Blee, which was all about what was going on at the bin Laden unit at CIA prior to 9-11 and after, which we followed on with our book in 2018, The Watchdogs Didn't Bark, which I hope for <laughs> at least me is like the last time I ever delve into the topic of 9-11 or the war on terror. But yeah, so that's sort of where it all came from. Like I have this desire to be involved with storytelling, to talk about in a human condition, love, life, death, loss, grief, all these things. And if in a more perfect world where I, I thought a lot of those journalistic endeavors were really being handled well, I'd leave that to a whole different field of people. And I would just run off and write, you know, novels or screenplays or something. But 
every once in a while, these events just keep happening where I go, you know, someone ought to do a, a deep dive into that. And since no one's doing it, might as well be me. Between Press for Truth, Who's Rich Blee, The Watchdogs Embark, you kind of kept returning for another bite of the apple. And maybe perhaps it's one of these things where it was sort of that seminal work for you and Novoselsky. Did the like message at all change or the mission at all change? It was nearly 11 years between release of Press for Truth and the publication of Watchdogs Den Park. Yeah, I mean, I think both of us wanted to be sort of done with it. You know, Ray, he has a, his primary work is with Barbara, Cop- Barbara Koppel out in New York City. He's a producer of documentary films. She's a director and he's produced a, you know, a lot of great films with her. And we're, you know, he and I are working on a, a, another film right now that's about something totally different. And we have our After the Uprising podcast series, which is about, you know, stuff that's happened in St. Louis with activists and stuff since the death of Mike Brown. We have other things we're interested in, but that particular apple of, you know, what happened on 9-11, why, who was punished, who was rewarded and all of the aftermath you know, again, there are those defining moments. It's you know, like Oliver Stone had, you know, the Vietnam War and, and Kennedy and stuff. That era really affected him. And I think just a couple of film students coming out during 9-11 and, that, and the beginning of the war on terror really affected us in the sense that we saw our country go in a direction that looked really, really bad and that was going to have ramifications for decades to come. And these are the things we're seeing now. I mean, if you look right now, you know, with everything that happened with the withdrawal in Afghanistan, uh, American credibility at large uh, vis-a-vis now Russia invading Ukraine and what to do about, you know, when we America stands up and says, like, that's wrong. Don't do that. You know, we should help them defend themselves. Everyone goes, well, hang on a minute. What about Iraq? You did that in Iraq. You, you know, like I think we saw those things happening and said this is going to be bad for the United States for a very, very, very long time. And that there's this real short-sighted approach that the state is taking towards terrorism that's going to push us off of any moral high ground we may have stood on. And that would have you know decades, if not a century uh, of ramifications. And we were trying to sort of warn about that by showing like, look, it's not even what you think it is. Like these, like, there was a lot going on behind the scenes regarding like the 9-11 attacks and even and e- even, you know, the coal bombing and some could argue the embassy bombings uh, where, you know, if you dive into our book, you see that there's a lot of people who have a lot of information that they're just sitting on and not using and not passing. And that's allowing these things to happen. And, you know, people can decide why they think that's the case. I'm not going to shove motivations into it, but we can just show that it happened historically. And, you know, yeah, we kept kept coming back to that apple, I think, because it was important to us because we didn't want our our whole country turning in a direction as we entered adulthood that was going to, you know, be awful. Like, I guess that's probably why we kept going back to it. And like I said, I think we're done with it for now, barring any, uh, Barring any new developments that mm-hmm. <laughs> really that really just sink the hook in one more time, uh, but you know we have a lot of other topics we're interested in, and you know I think we're interested in things that are much more local. That story, the the story of the war on terror, is is global. That's hard to report on and hard to understand. It's got a lot of levers, a lot of people, 
and getting access to the levels you need access at to really get into it is, is very difficult. Whereas I think we're finding that we like some of these smaller stories, like what we worked on out in St. Louis with After the Uprising and what we're doing now for our, our second season on that. And it's showing some of the same problems you might find at like a federal level in government, but just doing it in the microcosm. And I think that helps us get closer to characters and that helps bring people into the story. You can talk politics all day long about, you know, what's wrong with the government, what's wrong with how things are going at a federal level. But until you start making it about people and stories and the lives of individuals and how they're affected, it's much harder to get people to care. And so I think we're really trying to find some of those character driven stories that still expose corruption or still expose some of the, you know, the problems we have in in our society in a way that draws people into caring enough to want to do something about it. So season one is titled The Death of Donye Dion Jones. Looking at the death of a young African-American man who was the son of an activist in the Ferguson area, you went from something that was a global concern to something now very concrete, local, street level. We were definitely looking for our next story. We had finished the watchdogs didn't bark. Uh, so the book was out and we were just kind of kicking around story ideas. And the, I, you know, the, this, these facts about activists in Ferguson coming, turning up dead and what people were calling online, at least, you know, mysterious circumstances that that was something that we had kind of seen unfold over the years. And then Donye had, you know, died by hanging and we were just like, man, someone really needs to look into this, like really look into it. And it was that feeling of, I can't believe no one has tackled these stories yet in a, a deep dive sort of way, not just a blurb actually going in. And because, you know, so much of the media is just like, well, the families say this, uh, the police say this, there you have it, folks. And I was like, no, someone should go and read through them, you know, all the reports and talk to all of the friends, talk to all of the neighbors, you know, look into the cell phone content, like do a real investigation. And so it was that feeling of, well, if no one's going to do it, might as well be us. So we just, you know, started getting in contact with Donya's mother, Melissa McKinnis, and she, she, she took a little time to warm up to us, but we, we stuck around and we kept calling and we kept showing up and we kept reporting back to her, the things we were discovering and, we earned her trust and the trust of her family. And, you know, and that just, everything just blossomed, you know, his, his friends talked to us and uh, we were able to get contacts for all the people who knew him. We got all the documents out of the County. And we, you know, I think we put together a really good look into his death that has a handful of unanswered questions at the end of it that could set it one way or the other. And unfortunately, you know, the prosecutors and, and in St. Louis County aren't interested in taking the last and final step to really decisively determine what happened to him. And if people listen to that show in the final episode, they'll hear what that step is that, you know, we've put out the call and we're still waiting for them to just take that last and decisive step to, that they can take that will prove without a doubt, you know, sort of one way or the other, uh, what happened to Donye. Um, but we are working, you know, we're working on a second season of that show now, which is um, about other people and other things, but is still in the same vein. And going back to your initial question, yes, it's also because it's, it is 
more accessible, more street level. It's easier for us to get in and find people, find the phone numbers, call people, meet them, get the information and put together something like really thorough and investigative uh, because it's at that, that more local level. There's obviously been like a explosion within the true crime genre. Do you think that there is some possibility that the growth in the genre coincides with the loss of faith in traditional judicial structures here in the United States? Probably coincides with, but is not causal of. I think people from the outside, based on the work I've put out, would probably presume I'm much more uh, cynical than I am. But I think a lot of times traditional structures do work. You know, they do bring people to justice who have committed heinous acts. And I'm, I'm happy and thankful that that is the case. It's just there are times, you know, it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to catch everything. And of course, when you talk about, you know, judicial systems in, you know, in the United States, it's so fragmented. We have 50 states that are full of counties and municipalities that are all doing their own work. I'm sure some of these municipalities are amazing and do great work, whereas others, whether due to budgetary issues or, you know, nepotism or whatever it is, or, you know, internal, you know, character flaws of the people staffing them, which could include racism, you know, or just other character flaws, such as being not good at their jobs. <laughs> you know, there could be a lot of reasons why in certain areas at certain times for certain people, these systems fail. And I think, you know, whenever anything we highlight in the media can overwhelm people's senses into thinking that that's the majority case, you know, and there's people who always complain. It's like, oh, it's always just bad news. And it's like, of course, it's always just bad news because average news or, you know, good news doesn't really, isn't really worth reporting sometimes. Like everything A-OK at local school isn't really a story, you know, mm -hmm. um, and it, it, everything should be A-OK at the local school. And I do think we need to stop and recognize sometimes that by and large, we're all very lucky people to live where we live and to have you know, uh, live in a country that's not rife with like corruption and rife with, I don't know, awful things that we're not under attack. I, I don't know. There's just so many places in the world you could live where things would just be way worse, you know? Um, but th all that said, there are places and times where, where these things fail, sometimes spectacularly. And I'm also thankful that we have the rights and, and abilities and with so many people, the willingness to go out and independently try to pick up the pieces where things have fallen apart or where things haven't worked, you know, where, you know, there have been amazing is where because of gumshoeing and just people, you know, people sitting around in a, in a Reddit forum or whatever it is or on Twitter going like, all right, hang on a second, all collecting all, all the pieces of information and compiling them together that cases have been solved. People, you know, have been, people have been found. And I think that's awesome that, you know, there is an appetite in a certain part of the population to say, okay, you know, um, the, the system has definitely failed this young person who is missing or dead. Uh, and we're going to all, we're not going to tolerate that. We're going to get together as concerned citizens and we're going to solve this dang thing. And I think that's awesome that we have the ability to do that and that it happens, uh, you know, doesn't always work out when it does. It's great. Um, I know that there's 
critiques to be had about turning these things into entertainment uh, when it's the tragedy of some. But, you know, I, I try to look at it more like journalism than entertainment. Yes, it's engaging. You know, you listen to these things in pieces and you are engaged by the story, but it's also journalism. And it's like, it's a public good in the sense that people are learning about how things work when they work or how they fail when they fail. And hopefully people are getting a concern for the victims, you know, out there, people who've gone missing, people who have died and, you know, their killers haven't been found. One of the most important things for creative individuals and investigators like yourself is not just sharing the information, but giving folks the sense of agency that they too can make a difference, even despite the seeming injustice or disparity of power that still exists right now. 10, 15 years ago, telling people that podcasters would be solving murders or helping bring light major malfeasance of companies or prosecutors would uh, amaze so many people. That being said, you have just released or are just in days away from releasing your first novel, A Ballroom for Ghost Dancing. It's a story about the grief, growth, reflection of the main character after the passing of their brother and the many revelations they go on during a road trip with a band member. You clearly have a lot of stories that you've been working on. Why specifically a ballroom for ghost dancing? I have always had a love for reading and for writing, for literature. And I, when I graduated college, like I will tell you, my plan was I'm going to go get some junky old job. I, I was, it was 2003. I was like, I'm going to get a whatever job and I'm going to save money and I'm going to buy a cool like classic car and I'm going to drive across America having adventures so that I can actually have something to write about because I want to write novels, which sounds so very 21 year old person, <laughs> and, which is beautiful. It's beautiful. That's that, that was where my, my heart was at the time. Um, so I've always wanted to be telling, you know, these narrative stories that are about, you know, the, the deepest parts of our souls when it comes to life, love, loss, family, all the things that mean the most to us, the things we're really living for and the great mysteries of life that we're all trying to grapple with, contend with, come to terms with. Uh, you know, I have been writing short fiction for a while, which was always just sort of a cathartic thing for me. I sometimes would just be so out of my head, like frustrated with the world or whatever, that I would just sit down and I would, I would just open a notebook and just start writing a short story. I wouldn't have a plan for it. I would have no idea where it was going. I would just start writing. Then I would type it up on my computer and I'd refine it. And I've done this so many times and I have a huge collection of short stories. And one day I hope to release them as a collection. Other than that, I've, I've wanted to sit down and, and, and make a novel, write a novel. I want to write many novels. And I finally was like, look, I'm turning 40 and I'm going to do this. And I had an idea because truth be told, the, uh, like you mentioned, the story is 
about uh, one young man who has passed away and his brother who uh, is grieving that loss. In real life, one of my best friends of all time, uh, his cousin uh, passed away from ALS when he was a young man in his young 30s. And that man was a friend of mine as well. I went to high school with him. And seeing my friend after he had cared for his cousin, who was like a brother to him, they grew up like brothers, seeing what happened to him in the wake of that loss of that death and seeing how much it hurt him and wounded him. And it stirred in me all of these feelings and thoughts and it inspired me. And I was like, I want to, I'm going to fictionalize this. I'm going to fictionalize the people and I'm going to create a scenario, but I want to bundle this into, into a story, into a novel. And that's where the spark for the story came from. I came up with an idea about the, you know, how they would be band members and there would be this road trip and, I actually took that road trip with that friend who had been grieving the loss. Uh, I was like, get in the car. We're going to drive out. We're going to the Badlands. We're going to go to South Dakota and Rapid City. And we're going to see these places that I want to write about. And we'll, uh, we'll have a good time. We'll listen to music. We'll get, we'll get good dinners along the way. And, uh, and we'll, for me, it'll be a research trip so I can bring it all back and write this, this novel. And for you, it'll be a reason to get out of town for a while and, you know, shake off some dust. And so that was the impetus for it all. And I did that uh, over uh, just over a year ago. And I came back and I was like, I'm going to write this book. And I wrote it. I wrote a draft over the course of uh, November, which is sort of a thing that a lot of writers challenge themselves to do is to write a draft of a novel over the month of November. And like I said, it was my 40th birthday present to myself. I was like, I'm going to make sure that I don't leave this earth without having at least published one novel. What are some things that you do things that help make yourself a little bit more whole, help find your center at times of chaos or otherwise allow yourself to just sort of maintain your sanity. 100% top of that list is uh, Brazilian (laughs) jiu-jitsu. I've been training Brazilian jiu-jitsu for almost seven years now. Sometimes I compete you know, that activity puts me entirely in my body, right? I mean, it's definitely mental. There's definitely a puzzle to it, a mental puzzle, but it puts you in the present moment in a way where you cannot be bogged down Mm -hmm. with the thoughts of what's going on over there, what's going on in this place in the world, or what's, what's bothering you about what someone wrote on Twitter or whatever. Like if you're focused on that, you're dead, you know? So it just puts you center in the moment where you are right now. Before we let you go, John, do you have any upcoming events or any places where our listeners can find you if they want to learn more? Yes, I will be at Morgan Stern's Books in Bloomington, Indiana on October 25th at 6 p.m. for an author talk there. And then I will be at Books and Brews in Indianapolis at their Mothership location on Thursday, October 27th at 7 p.m. And then I will be at Indie Reads on November 4th at 6 p.m. for an author talk there. Yep. And you can also find the majority of John's writings online at johnfduffy.com. Well, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to chat. Thank you. Thank you.